Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to VMB, the voice of Manhattan business, brought to you by the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. I'm your host, Bruce Hurwitz. You can find me on the web at hsstaffing.com. I hope everyone will be able to join me at noon next Wednesday, when my guest will be Taylor Trusty from Blackstone Media Network. We will be discussing the importance of a discovery process for a successful marketing campaign. To learn about all future shows, please visit our website, thevoiceofmanhattanbusiness.com. And please remember to visit the events page on the Chamber's website, manhattancc.org, to learn about upcoming events on the Chamber's calendar. I am delighted to be joined today by Sarah Tennyson. We will be discussing how to prepare the next generation of leaders for your business. Please remember the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805-243-1301. Again, 805-243-1301. 1301 and dial 1 so I know you have a question. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's great to be here. It's my pleasure. So why don't we get started and tell us about yourself and your company. Certainly. Um, So I am a business psychologist by training and background, uh, which means that I'm not a therapist. Uh, and I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not interested in trials and tribulations of your childhood and so forth. Um, but what I have spent my career doing is helping people develop themselves, develop self-awareness, and build their skills to be more successful in their professional lives. Um, very early on, when I was uh, still in my study phase, uh, and I figured out what it was that I wanted to do, and it's still what motivates me now after 14 years in the business, and the reason why I started my company here. And it's that for most adults, we spend most of our waking lives at work. Uh, And everything that happens to us at work affects everything else in our lives, not only financially, but also in terms of our self-esteem, our relationships, our sense of achievement, um, uh, our, our, our sense of pride. All of those things are affected by what goes on at work. So my motivator was around how do we help people have the best experience and achieve the most success that they can in their workplace, and that will make a difference to the whole of the rest of their life. So that's a a bit about why I do what I do. Yeah, go on. Thank you. You mentioned self-esteem. That interests me Mm. because as a recruiter, I've read a lot that, and a career counselor, that men react more harshly, I don't know if that's the right word, to losing their jobs than women because men identify, self-identify more by their jobs and their careers than women do. Do you believe that's mm-hmm. true? I, I think there's certainly some research out there that would indicate that. And I think if you look historically at gender differences to do with work, that makes a lot of sense because historically you know, that, that, that identity built around your professional life has been more of a male-identified um, male thing than a female-identified thing. 
I would expect that now that is changing. Um, what I think is interesting when I work today with younger men, for example, um, is that they are now feeling some of the same pressures of juggling work and family life that women have traditionally felt because the identity of a younger man today is shaped as much by being a good husband and a good father, being present in the, in the home and the domestic life as it is around his career. So I actually think that's shifting, but it's, it's a really interesting point. And I wonder if you're seeing the same in, in your career um, consulting business. Well, when I, no, because when someone comes to me and they've been unemployed for X amount of time, male or female, unemployed for the same amount of time. And I I gave a talk, uh, I don't know, month, two months ago at the Science Industry and Business Library, and one woman put up her hand and she said, you know, I've been unemployed for a long time and I'm at my wit's end, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked her how long she had been unemployed, and she said three weeks. No one laughed. There were people in the room who had been unemployed three months. There were some who had been unemployed for over a year. It depends on your perspective. So for her, three weeks was a long time. Long time, yeah. yeah. But they are just as intense. You know, I need a job. I've been unemployed yeah. for this number of months. Male or female, yeah. it doesn't matter. They're both in yeah. panic mode. Yeah, they are. And I, I think this is, you know, one of the things that we do know about uh, differences often between male and female when they are experiencing difficult situations in life is that, that women um, reach out for social support more than men do. Um, so in those situations, uh, you, you might find that, that women are doing more of that and perhaps that might have even been while she's there certainly i think just going back to your point about self-esteem i mean i I think in in whether it's in a situation where you're trying to find a job or in a situation where you're in work and trying to improve your performance or get the next promotion or whatever it is you know how you see yourself and how you value yourself has a massive impact on what you're projecting out there how other people perceive you and that also impacts and what opportunities come your way. So I think it's core to whatever situation you're in. You're 100% correct. And thinking about what you just said, I've had significantly more female career counseling clients than male. Yeah. But mm-hmm. we could talk about this all day. It's not our topic. So <laughs> my bad. Let's get back to our topic. But well, we haven't even started it yet. But just to remind everyone, we're discussing how to prepare the next generation of leaders for your business. So, first question, what is a leader? Yeah, great question. Um, And I'd love to have a really pithy one-line answer that applies to every context, but that just isn't the case. Um, I think this question of what is a leader is a really hot topic today in the context of multi-generational workforces. I think there's, there's obviously with the retirement of the boomer generation, there's a need to build up uh, a, a very strong leadership pipeline. And there are many businesses out there, and particularly in smaller firms, where they are not good at succession planning and where often the founder or the leader of the company really believes that they'll go on forever. Um, you know, what is a leader? For me, um, 
a leader is ultimately measured by whether they can attract and retain followers. So are they able, as a business leader particularly, to get other people to want to join them on their mission and engage them so that they want to stay with them to complete that mission, whatever it is. I think there are some things in the leadership role that we can apply across contexts. You know, that the leader is ultimately somebody who is responsible and accountable for what goes on. They may well be, therefore, the main decision maker or the ultimate decision maker in what goes on. But I think, I think what, what varies dramatically when you try and define leadership is how you are as a leader, what style you use, what tools or techniques you use, because I think that is very, very context dependent. I think there are some circumstances, you know, in, in a crisis mode where one style of leadership actually works quite well because, you know, people look for strength and reassurance and confidence in the face of uncertainty. On the other hand, if actually you're, you're in a situation in your business where you really need to create innovation and you need uh, people to be free to do that, then a different style is required. And I think that's, that's where it becomes much harder to define a leader or define leadership in, in one line. I've been doing this show now for five years. As you yeah. and our regular listeners know, I have, after today's show, two more left. And then I hope that I will be handing off to someone new. But mm-hmm. I can honestly say that this is the first time anyone has ever said pissy on this show. <laughs> that could be my claim to fame. <laughs> that's your claim to fame. That's it. We could end right now and your place in history would be assured. That's fantastic. <laughs> Sarah, are leaders created? Can leading be learned? Is it a trait that can be learned? Or are you either born with it or not? So I believe that leaders are formed from the combination of the situation and themselves so if I break your question down into sort of is it a nature or a nurture issue for me it is absolutely a combination of both Um, uh, one of the in terms of learning to be a leader one of the qualities that is most predictive of success as a leader is something that, that we call learning agility And what that really means is that you are a person who uh, reflects on what you do and the way you do it. And you think critically about your own actions, behaviors, um, decision-making processes, and so on. And you reflect on those and you ask yourself, what can I learn from this and can I change and can I do it better? And that constant ability to learn and that constant desire to learn is actually one of the most predictive qualities in successful leaders. Um, And one thing that's interesting about that is that uh, even people who don't know the term but who have demonstrated leadership success in their business or in other fields of life, when you ask them what do they do all the time, that's one of the things that they will describe even though they may not use the word. So I do think it's possible to learn to be a better leader and to develop yourself to become a better leader. Um, And I think that people like myself and and like you who are coaches and trainers and facilitators can aid that process. But I do think ultimately it's about 
your own ability and willingness and desire to keep on challenging and stretching yourself and growing in some way. Now, our focus is on millennials. Mm. Who are they and what makes them unique? So this is such a hot topic right now, and I have been fascinated by this by, for quite some time. And I've looked at it from both the research perspective and as a practitioner in my client organizations. Um, so to deal with the first part, you know, who are the millennials? They are, uh, there are a few different definitions. The one I use is that they are a generation characterized by people who were born between 1980 and about 2000. Now, there's actually some newer research that suggests that you could cut that millennial generation in two and that there are actually distinct differences between uh, millennials, like early, early millennials and later millennials. Mm-hmm. Goodness me, that's a mouthful. Um, however, that aside, let's use that definition for the purposes of this conversation. Um, one of the most interesting things about millennials in the workplace is that although we use this label very frequently and it's become very popular in the press, in terms of the research, there's actually very little evidence that they are significantly different as a generation than previous generations were when they were also of that age in their career. Where we do see differences um, in terms of life more generally is obviously the most often cited one is around you know, technology, having been born into the internet era, grown up being very dexterous with technology. There, is, there are quite, uh, quite a lot of changes in the way that we have educated millennial generations um, as well that impact the way that they now show up in the workplace. Um, one of those is, as an example, is that, um, you know, people now, because of the, the internet and the advent of smart technologies and so forth, is that we don't have to retain so much stuff in our own memory. We, we just need to know where to go to look for it and where to go to retrieve that information to find it. And that's just a really different way of learning and thinking than previous generations had because the technology wasn't available to them. Now, by definition, millennials will be replacing boomers. So what do millennials lack that boomers have? Yeah. Um, the, the key thing, uh, which is true of every generation, is, is simply the years of experience that creates wisdom. You know, um, people who are now perhaps in their mid-career, and some millennials will be now in their mid-career point or coming up to that point, you know, may have lived through one economic cycle. Many are in the workplace now having not ever lived through a big crash, for example. And the reality is simply that by virtue of those years of experience, what you develop is an intuitive sense and a tacit knowledge that impacts the decisions you make, the way you do your work, the way that you suddenly intuitively know how to, um, how to get things done in an organization. And you can't magically inject that into people. Um, But what you can do is you can accelerate the development of leaders through well-designed experiences and opportunities and support 
so that we strengthen this leadership pipeline. So as, as you're quite rightly saying, as the, the boomers come up to retirement and more millennials are replacing them, that we've got a better transition process in place. Thank you for that. Now, just a reminder, you're listening to the Voice of Manhattan Business. My guest today is Sarah Tennyson. We will be discussing how to prepare the next generation of leaders for your business. Well, we are discussing that. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805-243-1301 and dial 1 so I know you have a question. Please remember the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. Now, we discussed what um, millennials uh, lack that boomers have. What do millennials have that boomers lack? Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a so great the opposite. question. I had to think that one out it's, for, for a yeah. second, but I got it right. Yeah. You did get it right, absolutely. Um, what millennials have that boomers lack? Um, so again, I think this is. I think it's it's important for us uh, when we think about this to be really aware of uh, some of the myths that are perpetuating out there. So again, if you look at the actual research, um, there is quite a little difference between them in terms of things like wanting to make a positive impact on the organization, um, commitment to the organization, uh, you know, uh, interest in their work and so on. There's actually very little difference between those generations. One thing that I think that millennials do have that we, that we see anecdotally in the workplace is, number one, I think they are better at asking for what they want and need than previous generations have had. I, I have had countless clients um, say to me that, you know, that they're, in many ways, struggling with how to respond to younger generation employees who are asking them, well, what do I need to do to get a promotion? Or when's my next step? Or, you know, you're not really using me to my full capacity and how, you know, what what can I do to make that happen? Um, and I, I think they are better at asking for that. And I think sometimes in terms of management, we really need to challenge ourselves and say, actually, why shouldn't we be able to articulate very clearly what it takes to get to the next promotion? Um, that's actually good management practice. The same with giving feedback. If, if people are hungry for feedback and they've come through an education system where they get far more personalized feedback than previous generations ever had, and so they expect it at work. But actually, if you think across the generations, everybody wants feedback at work delivered in a constructive way uh, with good intentions that is specific that you can actually do something with it. But I do think the millennial generation are better at asking for it. One of the other things that we do see as well is that um, people move on. They, they move jobs or they think about moving jobs more quickly. Um, and again, uh, you know, if you think about this from an organization's perspective, I think we need to start designing for that and expecting that um, and not, see, and not being surprised by it or not viewing it as something that shouldn't happen in some way. I think we need to, as organizations and particularly within you know, HR and organizational development professions, I think there's a lot more that we can do to make our organizations fit the workforce that we have now. That's a good segue to my next question because a millennial wants to be promoted 
They may be impatient by the process or there may be no room for promotion. Mm-hmm. But the employer has been investing in them, trying to develop them into leaders. And if they leave, then the employer has wasted all that time on this individual. I mean, they've made him a better or her a better uh, employee for somebody else, mm-hmm. but from mm-hmm. the perspective of the employer, it's a waste of time. So this brings us to the topic of retention. Mm-hmm. What do employers have to do to retain their millennial employees? The first thing they have to do is they have to really behave in, a, in, in ways that demonstrate that they genuinely do value their employees and that they genuinely do provide the opportunities that they promise when they hire people. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot that is made um, in recruitment processes about the opportunities that the employer will provide to new and young recruits. Um, and not always, but you know, many times, um, they get into the company and they discover that actually what the level where their expectations have been sat uh, and set actually don't match the reality of the day-to-day experience of being in that company. So I think one thing that organizations can do is be really, really careful about uh, how much of a sales pitch they're giving and how much of the opportunities in, uh, they are they are communicating to potential recruits versus what is the day-by-day experience in in the building. The second thing that that leads to is that the reality for millennial generation employees, as with other generations, is that when people start to lose commitment to an organization and start to think about leaving, it is invariably mostly affected by their relationship with their manager or their relationship with other people around them. And that's still as true today as it has been previously. So again, I think there's a lot of management competence and management development in in organizations that needs to take place for them to be equipped to keep these people engaged and keep them challenged and stretched so that so that work is more is interesting for them as well. Now talk to us. Uh, I basically have two questions that demand case studies, if you will. Okay. Talk to us about the successful transition from boomer leadership to millennial leadership. If you can give us an example so it's not all theory, I would appreciate it. Yep, sure. So um, so the, the first thing to say on that is that particularly in – smaller businesses, but sometimes in larger firms too, um, the, the person who is the senior leader or the founder of that firm has a notion of succession planning and transition, but no real understanding of what that really means. So um, I have done a couple of um, coaching engagements in these types of settings where what I'm helping the person coming up to retirement to do is to define what what do they want to transition into and how are they going to go through that process in a way that works for them emotionally cognitively socially as well as financially and helping them transfer some of their knowledge to 
a, a younger person. Where it works really successfully is where they've identified that younger person and allowed that person to effectively buy in and have to take a stake some, in some way in owning the transition. So it really does feel like a, a transference from one to the other. Um, for the younger person, that might mean that you you give them you know opportunities like um, shadowing. There might be a phased exit. Um, you might give that person you know opportunities to go and run different departments so they actually see different parts of the business when they do that. Um, but but the most successful ones that I've been involved in have been where I, as a coach or a consultant, work both with the person who is transitioning out and at the same time with the person who's stepping up in. You mentioned um, the shadowing. And yeah. I'm smiling because a long time ago I had a guest on and I asked her, I, I used shadowing as the example and she didn't have a clue what I was talking about. Oh. And uh, it, it was a little embarrassing. Uh, but okay. just to be on the safe side, Explain what you mean by shadowing. Yeah, so what I mean by shadowing is literally um, literally going with the person as they go about their job. So that could mean attending certain meetings with them. It could mean participating or co-presenting with them when they report on certain things. Uh, it could mean intimately in the decision-making process around certain, you know, certain things or certain strategies. So it's, it's literally, it come, comes from the notion that as we all walk around during our day, we have a shadow that's right behind us and it follows us everywhere. That's where the concept came from and where the word comes from. Um, obviously, within each context, you have to figure out what is appropriate and what is um, too much or too little shadowing for someone. And that's what I'd like to touch on for a moment because when I'm throwing out the option to a career counseling client of trying to arrange shadowing opportunities... I mm -hmm. tell them that in the first place, they don't have to worry that the person they are going to be shadowing is going to think that they are competition because they're mm -hmm. not qualified for the job that person mm -hmm. is presently doing. Maybe in five, ten years, but that's irrelevant. But the issue is that first the individual who's going to be shadowed has to get permission, and that's not easy to obtain, mm -hmm. and secondly, mm -hmm. there are issues of confidentiality. Mm -hmm. So how realistic have you found shadowing opportunities to be? Well, certainly if you're, if you're both within the same firm, um, I've seen it happen quite frequently. Um, it, it may be, obviously, those issues you raised would certainly be the case if, if you were asking someone to come into their firm and you're not a current employee. But some of those can also be covered by confidentiality agreements, NDAs and so on, in the same way as you do with interns and, and things like that. Um, but I, I certainly have seen it work within organizations where both parties are, are employed by the same firm. It's funny, and this is gonna, it's a statement of fact, so it's not chauvinistic. I have found amongst my career counseling clients the younger and more attractive get more shadowing opportunities. It's just, I wonder why. You know, it, it, I think it's because it goes to the ego of the person who is 
permitting the shadowing because they can then get up and say, or they get the impression exists, I'm helping a young person and there's something special about them. It may not be their looks, but I think that is part of the equation. Hmm. I, I mean, I, yeah, I would say for, for any, any experience, whether it's shadowing or internships or job rotation or anything like that to, to really have benefit, it does, it does have to be designed really well. It's not, you know, um, shadowing isn't that beneficial if, if the person being shadowed sort of thinks that they, they just have this, you know, very nice sidekick with them for a few days, that then they're not really going to be learning very much from the experience. So I, I would a, say that – sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say it's a huge ask. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And I, I think it's a bit like when um, I liken it to when you set up mentoring relationships. And one of the things I do there is, is help both mentors and mentees start off in a good way so that they actually know and understand what the responsibilities are that they're each bringing to this relationship and this engagement um, so that they both feel they're getting value out of it. Because, you know, the person, for example, in, in the shadowing example we're talking about, the person being shadowed could actually really leverage uh, their shadow to get a fresh perspective on what they're doing from someone who's completely, you know, new to it and sees it with fresh eyes. Um, and they could learn a lot just by hearing how that person perceives things. But, you know, unless they've thought that through, they may not take that opportunity to ask the question. Excellent point. Excellent point. And I, I'll tell you, you're the first person I've heard raise it. And that's mm. So, last question. Give us a case study of a millennial who became a leader. Uh, I've got one of my favorite um, coaching engagements is, is this story, actually. Um, and it was quite an interesting one because uh, it was – it had a cross-cultural as well as a generational aspect to it. Um, so I was brought in by a, a financial services organization to be the coach for a young female who had been a really outstanding individual sales performer. She was absolutely fantastic. And, and when they brought me in, they said to me, if I ask the CEO who is you know, the top three or four salespeople in the company, she would be named as one of them. But they now wanted her to become manager of a team and a leader of a team. And the challenge it presented uh, for her was not only to make the transition from being an outstanding individual performer to shifting to uh, a, a leadership role where she can actually get the best out of a whole team of people, not just out of herself. But it was also, this was actually in, in Asia, um, and she was the only uh, non-local person in the team. So she had this cultural aspect that she had to get to grips with, as well as developing herself to go from everything is about me and my performance, and I'm fairly autonomous in that, to a place where she really needed to allocate time and energy and attention to bringing the best out of everybody around her. So we worked together for about six months um, 
with a formal engagement whereby I had reviews uh, with her, her manager, and her HR sponsor. Um, I took feedback samples from the people that she was leading, as well as from peers in other departments to get, get feedback on how she was doing. Um, and by the end of it, uh, what we saw was, first of all, that the team the team were performing where they hadn't been when she first took them on. Um, the second was that there was a noticeable, as reported by other people, improvement in her confidence as a leader. So she'd started to define herself as a leader, um, which was a which was a really important part of her style. Um, but she was also much better able to connect with the team. So she'd managed to sort of bridge some of this cultural difference that was between them and that had been perceived as potentially a very big challenge. So that was, it was a really rewarding engagement. Um, and I was really delighted to hear about a year afterwards that she'd actually been promoted again to lead a regional team. So a much bigger, broader ge geographical spread team as well. It's funny that you use that example because there's a famous case, and I can't remember what the company was, where there was a salesperson, this guy had been on the job forever, and every new hire would sit by him literally and figuratively at his feet for a few weeks to learn the business. And they okay. were all successful. All right, they, He, he right. was a great trainer. He was a phenomenal salesperson. And they decided to promote him to a manager. And right. he got the raise, he got the title, he got the office, and he was a disaster. Yeah. He right. just, one-on-one, -on -one he was great. But to run a, a department, he could not do it. And they didn't fire him. They brought him, the story is more from the perspective of the company morals and values. Everybody made a mistake. They shouldn't have offered it to him. They should have given yeah. him training. So he got his old job back, but he kept his his, his new salary, which is the okay. nice part of the story. And he kept his yeah. job, and everything was fine. No harm, no foul. Yeah. He went back mm -hmm. to doing what he was good at. Perhaps if that company had had you, they would have been able to turn him into a um, successful manager. But let me ask you a serious question. Would age have made a difference? Would it have been harder to teach somebody probably in their 60s how to be a manager, how to be a leader, than somebody who's in their mid to late 20s? Um, I think it's, it's worth remembering that both are capable of learning and changing. So, you know, the, the brain plasticity that we have that enables us to learn and to change goes on throughout our lives, but the reality is it does decline with age. I would say one of the biggest things about that in terms of age difference would be what was their motivation for doing it. Um, because part of whether you can actually make that transition successfully or not is partly about your, whether you want to. And so many people get into management and they're all promoted into management because they were really good at doing something else that's completely different from management. But they were good at that, so we make them managers. Um, but, but actually, when people get in there, they discover that they really don't, don't enjoy it. They don't enjoy that aspect of developing and coaching people. They don't enjoy having to deal with other people's problems. They don't want to have the difficult conversations that helps people stay on top performance. So in terms of the age difference, 
I would be really interested in why does each of them want to take on that role at this stage in their career and what are they bringing to the table um, that will help them be successful in that role? Sarah, I want to thank you. This has been extremely informative and I'm sure all of our listeners appreciate it. Before I let you go, tell us what the best way is to get in touch. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. I've really enjoyed it. Best way to get in touch with me is either to call me uh, and can I give the number? It's sure if you want to. Yep. So call me on 646-266-2433 or email at info at sarahtennyson.com. Sarah, thank you very much. I appreciate you. you coming on. Pleasure. And this, once again, this is Bruce Hurwitz. Thank you for listening, and have a safe and prosperous week.